Greetings and welcome back to another Project Red podcast. My name is Brian. With me is my business partner and friend, James. How are you, brother? Really good. Thanks, Brian. It's a miserable Friday afternoon here in the UK, but I'm very excited about today's guest. Oh, that's terrible news. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, I am very excited about today's guest as well as our listeners would be aware. I hope they are aware. If they're not aware, then our marketing is not working. But we are now proud resellers of Redmond Real Salt in the UK and Europe. And we're so excited to have Daryl from Redmond joining us on this podcast today. Welcome, Daryl. How are you? Good, Brian. Thanks for having me on the program. It's great to uh, be a part of the program, even though I'm across the pond. Yeah, we're all, uh, we've all got our foot on, on some different soil right now. It's uh, quite amazing. Where are you right now, Daryl? I'm in a little town called Heber City, Utah. It's up kind of near Park City, kind of in the mountain areas of, of uh, northern Utah. Okay, cool. Um, so we're going to get into the importance of real salt because I know um, a lot of our, our listeners might not be aware of, of Redmond or real salt and why it's so important. But why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, who Redmond is, and uh, why real salt is so important? Well, wow, that's a, a, it's a big three-part question. I could probably talk for three hours on that one. But uh, real briefly, my family, uh, so I grew up in, this, in the salt business. So my grandfather and his brother had a farm here in Utah. And in the 1950s, there was a really bad drought. And there was an outcropping of salt north and south of their farm. So they figured there was salt underneath. And so they got a loan and plowed out the, the, the farm out of the center and started harvesting salt. And the, uh, the salt that comes out of the deposit is a crystal salt. It's an ancient seabed. Um, some of your guests may be familiar with the Himalayan pink salt. Mm -hmm. So salt can come from either a current ocean, like the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, it can come from a ancient or a, a dead sea, like the Dead Sea in Israel or the Great Salt Lake, which is a dead sea here in Utah, or it can come from an ancient seabed. Uh, there's ancient seabed deposits from eons ago. There's a deposit in Bolivia called Bolivian pink salt. There's a deposit that occurs in Pakistan. The Himalayan salt comes out of that deposit. And there's this ancient seabed deposit in Utah. And so if we went back, you know, millions of years, geologists say that Utah used to be at sea level. You know, Utah's in the Intermountain West, uh, kind of the western part of the U.S. Uh, that used to be at sea level during the Jurassic era. So this is 150 to 250 million years ago. The Arctic Ocean flooded down because it was at sea level, left this big body of salt water covering what's now the states of Colorado, Utah, parts of Montana, Idaho, this great big inland sea that was at sea level. Well, under heat and pressure, you know, that eventually gets buried and that salt is now pushed up. And so the deposit that's under my grandfather's farm of this ancient inland sea salt that's got, you know, minerals and colors and, and flecks in it, that deposit's about a quarter mile wide, three miles long and 5,000 feet deep. And at 5,000 feet, the deposit turns and goes horizontal again. And so this ancient seabed was trapped and preserved over, you know, thousands or millions of years. And so today, you know, unfortunately, us humans haven't been the best stewards of this planet that we call Earth. And so we have things like, you know, microbeads and plastics and pharmaceuticals and all kinds of stuff 
Um, you know, we had Exxon Valdez and the BP spill, um, the, the Sea of Japan now, you know, unfortunately, because of the Fukushima. And so we have a lot of these, you know, problems that we didn't have with the seas, you know, millions of years ago. And so that's one of the things that makes Redmond uh, and real salt a little unique is that it's from an ancient seabed that was, you know, trapped underground, preserved for, you know, millions of years. And now it comes to us and, and we just, uh, you know, we don't do anything to it. We just crush it and screen it. Mm. And so, you know, years ago, we heard that, you know, salt was bad for us. And if you've listened to the news um, or some doctors years ago, they you know talked about how bad salt is yet. If you go to the hospital, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to give you an IV of saline solution, which is salt water. It's 0.9% sodium chloride and then, and then water. And so salt is essential for life. You know, every civilization was founded around access to the salt deposits. In Rome, the term salary is derived from being paid in salt. And the old saying is a man worth his salt was because you were paid in salt. And if you weren't earning your keep, you weren't worth the salt that you were paid. And so these phrases from, you know, that have just, you know, been carried forward into our civilization, things like, you know, salary, man worth his salt, um, you know, those are all tied to how important salt has always been to civilization. Mm -hmm. And yet now you fast forward and you hear salt's bad for us, but the difference is, is twofold. One, a lot of the foods people eat are salted with, it's bad food to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the second thing is the nature of salt is changed over time. And so if we went back 150, 200 years ago, we would have all eaten more salt because everything would have been preserved in salt, mm -hmm. kimchi, sauerkraut, veggies, jerky, whatever you're eating, if it wasn't in season, had to be preserved in salt. But we didn't have these problems that are associated with salt. Well, if we go back, you know, years ago and years ago, or, or the way that, you know, our, our ancestors have always eaten salt is you take salt in its natural form. And in seawater, salt occurs as a complex chloride. So it has calcium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, selenium, zinc, phosphorus, iodine, all of these other trace minerals in addition to the salt. You know, over time through science, we've discovered that we can take seawater and we can leach out the potassium chloride, sell it off to this particular industrial company, take out the magnesium chloride, sell that, take off the calcium chloride, and now with the sodium chloride that's left with some of these other smaller trace minerals, we can still sell that as salt. Mm. It'd be like if you were selling a, a, a beautiful grapefruit, but before you sold the grapefruit, you extracted the ascorbic acid. Mm. And you still sell the grapefruit, but you don't have the, the neat parts that make the grapefruit so cool. Mm. Um, and, so, and so we've kind of done... What you, so what you're saying there, that's, that's processed salt, right? So what you've just illustrated for us is what people call processed salt. So that's, that's some, that's, I'd like to draw people's attention to that because, you know, that's, that's the first thing people say. Like, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine and probably of yours, and I know it's James too. When you go to a restaurant and there's this perfect bleached, bright white salt on the table with perfect uniform little cubes, and that's that's the problem i think so i don't know if you know anything about i mean that that processed salt is what i think the doctors took you know 50 60 years ago and said oh my god salt is bad don't don't eat it would i be correct in saying it's it's the processed salt that's the problem absolutely correct now i i think it's it's fun how you pointed out if you take your shaker and you dump it in your hand and you see those crystals and those crystals are perfectly round 
every crystal identical beady, um, crunchy, you know, that's not natural. Salt should look like a snowflake. And whether you, whether you get the, the Redmond real salt brand that we do, you know, here in Utah, or you find some other natural salt that's your favorite, um, if it, it should look more like a snowflake and less like a perfectly manufactured bead or crystal, um, because salt in nature, you know, should look like a beautiful snowflake. Every crystal should be different. It should be unique. So the, so that there's twofold. So the, the lack of the trace minerals is a problem. That's what I, we talked about just a second ago. And it's a problem because in our bodies, our bodies require potassium, magnesium, uh, calcium to digest the sodium. And that's why, you know, you have in your cells, the sodium potassium pump, and it brings in sodium releases potassium. And so these electrolytes are essential to, to work together. You know, it's kind of like we learned years ago that, you know, Calcium and vitamin D are essential to have together. If you have one without the other, you don't, you don't get that benefit. And, and sodium and chloride or sodium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, these, these complex chlorides that occur, primarily sodium and chloride, but these other, you know, smaller complex chlorides are really important for the body. Um, so we don't want to isolate those. Now, the second problem, and you kind of alluded to this in those BB crystals. So salt, <clears throat> excuse me. Salt is hygroscopic. Hygroscopic means it absorbs moisture out of the air. So if you're in somewhere nice and humid and you have a salt crystal and you put it on a plate, you will actually have a pool of water at the base of that salt crystal because it's, it's sucking the moisture out of the air. That's its job. And in the body, salt's job is to help regulate the intercellular, extracellular fluids. And so salt's ability to interact with moisture is key. It, it's absolutely necessary. But yet, if you have salt that's hygroscopic, it can get kind of clumpy on a humid day. And so years ago, some of the salt companies said, well, this is kind of annoying that we have to take our shaker and tap it because the salt clumps. And so they did some research to find out what chemicals they could add to salt to stop its ability to interact with moisture. Now, that sounds great if you're trying to get it not to clump in the shaker, the problem is you're stopping exactly what salt's supposed to do in the body, which is to regulate fluids. And so if you look at the, the, the label or the ingredients on a lot of salt, you'll see an ingredient list of things like it'll have salt, and it'll, which is the demineralized salt to begin with generally. Then you'll have a chemical called yellow prussiate of soda or sodium ferrous cyanide, or you'll have a chemical called uh, calcium or uh, sodium silicoaluminate which is a very similar product that's in your antiperspirant. You might see propylene glycol 400. And so these are all approved additives to stop the salt's ability to, to bind to moisture. Now, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not an, an expert or I'm not a, you know, in, in all of the aspects of human health, but I would almost guarantee if you took two licks of your antiperspirant every morning before breakfast, you're gonna have some health issues. Um, in, in small amounts, these chemicals that are added to displace moisture in small amounts in single doses, maybe it's not a problem, which is why it's approved for use in a lot of foods. Um, mm -hmm. but yet we know that through microaccumulation, there's problems with chemicals as they add up in small levels in our bodies. And when you take something as essential for salt, essential for life as salt in, in order of importance, you have oxygen you have water and then you have salt. Yeah. And, you know, as your salt levels drop, hyponatremia is what's going to happen. Um, you know, you can drink all the water in the world, but yet our tears are salt, 
Our sweat is salt. I wouldn't recommend tasting it, but your urine is salt. And as you're flushing those electrolytes, if you don't replace those, you're going to have some serious health problems. Mm -hmm. And when you take something as essential for life as salt, it's in every IV because it's mm -hmm. so essential. And then you add chemicals that, that, uh, that stop the salt's ability to interact with moisture. Mm -hmm. You're just asking for problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you bring, up a, you bring up a very important point there. And that's something that I always try and, I try and drive home with our community and our followers, because a lot of our followers are actually on, on the keto diet and a lot of them are also on the carnivore diet. And one of the things, I'm not sure if you know about this, but one of the things that we experience on this kind of diet is because when you eliminate the carbs, you also eliminate a lot of water out of your body. And with that water that flushes out, you're flushing out your electrolytes. So even if you are having good salt, you, because your body naturally is letting go of all those, those, that water under your skin, you're losing a lot of electrolytes. So I always say to people, man, you've got to have way more salt than you think you need. But we're still like, Jesus, what? Salt? Blood pressure? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I always like to drive home there. And, and, and that's the, 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 the fact that you mentioned about the sodium and potassium pump is that the electrolytes that we found in salt is what kind of drives that energy transfer between the cells of the body. And that then makes you feel amazing. You know, if, if you don't have enough electrolytes in your body, you're going to get a headache. You're going to be fatigued. You're going to be low on energy. And in the extreme case, you're going to, you know, have serious, serious health issues. So, I mean, I guess the point is, you know, the point is that, that something like real salt is, is a health food. It's actually a health food. Yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned the keto diet. Uh, when, when glycogen, you know, gets burned and gets released from the body up to the, between two and four grams of water are attached to each gram of that glycogen. And so as you are switching over and you're burning on, on fats instead of burning on those, those stored you know, carbs, you're shedding large amounts of water. So a lot of people, when they switch over to that keto diet, they'll find they're using the bathroom a lot more often because mm -hmm. they're flushing that, that excess fluid that's attached to those, those sugar cells. And so when that happens, Again, as you point out, you're just flushing those electrolytes. And so there's that keto flu people talk about. And what's happening is the body starts to, to just, you know, shut down as it's going through dehydration. And the challenge is you might think oh, I'm dehydrated. I need to drink more water. Well, that's fine. But unless you have salt to it, then it's actually not hydrating the cells. Because if you've got an IV of distilled water, you would actually, it would actually eventually kill you. Uh, it, would, yeah. it would burn terribly. Um, because our bodies don't run on distilled water. Mm. Our, our bodies are that saline solution in motion. And so as we're, as we're urinating or, or sweating or getting rid of those electrolytes or, or just that, you know, we, we can't just drink water. Mm. We have to have that salt to offset that. And one thing, when people switch to this more natural lifestyle and natural diet, if you're eating canned foods and boxed foods, you know, you're getting tons of processed salt. Mm. Um, because it's a, it's a cheap preservative, yeah. especially, and now, and the salt that's added, isn't a healthy salt to begin with. And so as the consumer gets more aware and, Hey, I'm going to eat less processed foods. Well, that's a great start. But as they do that, their salt needs actually increase quite a bit, mm. uh, because they're drinking more water. They're aware that they're dehydrated, which most people are. They don't, you know, most people drink, you know, way too much other stuff and not near enough water. And so as they become more aware and they're drinking, you know, more amounts or at least a, a better amount of good, clean water, 
and they're eating less processed foods, well, you're going to feel pretty sick. You know, you're going to get ornery. You're going to get, you know, angry with people. You're going to feel headaches and nauseous. And, and, you know, a lot of that is, is because your, your body's low on, on water and salt. Mm. But you're not, it's not because you're low on sugar typically. Yeah. Grab another donut. Um, <laughs> And, and something that's also worth pointing out is, you know, not many people know this, that if you, if you're drinking, I mean, hopefully you're drinking really good quality water, but if it's been filtered or filtered or reverse osmosis or, you know, the charcoal filters, it can take out any of the minerals that might be left in that water. So you're, you're drinking filtered water, which is probably advisable to most tap water in most mm -hmm. countries, but you have to, you have to put those electrolytes back in and, and that's where, you know, I've personally, I noticed a massive difference with when I started using real salt, um, like, I, like we mentioned to you before we came on the podcast. James and I have been using real salt for about three years now. And, um, you know, part of our, our mission at our company, which you know, our listeners will know, we sell mostly red light therapy. But we realized a couple of months ago, you know, we were looking at each other and we thought, well, you know, this is not all we do. Like red light therapy is very powerful, but it's not all we do. You know, so we wanted to share more with people and, you know, so we're bringing out a couple of extra products and, and Redmond, it, it just clicked to me. I was like, oh my God, you know, like, I'm, I'm not sure if you know the story, but I live down in Guatemala and one of your executives from Redmond lives down in Guatemala as well. So uh, I was two. two, exactly. <laughs> so I was, um, I was messing around on Instagram one day. I was, I was writing something on the Redmond page or whatever. I said something like, oh man, I wish I could get my Redmond down in Guatemala. And then they were like, oh my God, two's down in Guatemala. And they got us in touch. And so, you know, that kind of just spurred the whole thing because I obviously got to learn a lot more about Redmond directly from him. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated with, with the Redmond, uh, the real salt. And, and I wonder if, I mean, unless I'm, I know I'm rambling on, James might have a question, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the mining process. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the actual Redmond mines and what they look like and what the process is? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and I'll back up just a little bit. You know, one of the ways, you know, if, if we talk about different ways we can produce salt, today there's, there's three major ways. So the first way is evaporation ponds. And so if you go to the coast of Brittany, France, there's these, you know, big ponds on the side of the on Mediterranean. And seawater occurs with, at about 3% sodium and chloride. Our bodies are about 1%. So the reason that we swim in the ocean, it stings our eyes or gets in our nose and kind of burns is because it's three times more salty than the human body. Now, uh, historians um, say that the oceans are getting more salty every day. And so, you know, if you go back 150 million years ago, the, the oceans weren't near as salty as they are today because the salt is running off the mountains and getting, you know, concentrated in the oceans. So, Seawater, though, water can only hold 26% sodium and chloride. And so there on the coast of Brittany, France, they'll take the seawater off the Mediterranean, which is about 3%, uh, 2 to 3% sodium and chloride. They put it in a, in a lined pond with gray clay, typically, so the water doesn't seep out. Then as the sun evaporates that water, the salt goes from 3 to, to 4 to 5 to 6. At 26% is max salinity, and the salt crystals will fall out of suspension onto the bottom of the pond, they rake those crystals up and now you've got this pretty gray French salt because you're getting some of that color from the clay lined pond, which is great. And then you have the salt crystals, which are great too. And so that's the same process, whether it's the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, the coast, the Mediterranean, that's how salt comes out of the oceans. 
um, and they can use a different. So if you do it like in France, you use one pond and you let the salt all fall out together. And so you get this kind of this whole salt. If you want to pull out the different minerals, what you do is you put a, a liner or a membrane in the first pond and then it leaches off, say, the potassium chloride. Then you pump the water to the next pond, leach out the magnesium chloride. And so that's how you get this through a series of evaporation ponds. You can eliminate these other, these other essential um, these are their essential complex chlorides. So that's the first way. And then at that point, they would either, you know, rinse it, they, they might add some anti-caking agents, but that's, that's the process. Now you've also got these underground salt deposits that were laid down eons ago, mm -hmm. these ancient seabeds. Underneath the city of Chicago, there's some of these deposits in the US. So if they're so deep and not economical to mine, what they do is they'll take distilled water, they'll pump it down into a big hole, that fresh water is hungry. And so it's gonna start dissolving that salt. When the salt water is max salinity at 26%, they'll pump the water back out and then they'll run it through a similar process. They'll use a kiln and boil that water off. They'll add the anti-caking agent so they don't clump back into a big hard lump. And through this vacuum pan evaporation is when you get those perfectly little beady crystals because mm -hmm. you've taken this solution added chemicals to it to make it bind up in these perfect little cubes because they're clumpy. Then you add the anti-caking agents and that's how you get um, solution to mine salt. Now the third way is this ancient crystal way. And so um, there's a couple ways to mine that. So you can use explosives, you can use more manual processes um, or you can use a more, uh, a more modern process. So in the deposit, I kind of mentioned it sits vertical. And so the salt would have been laid down horizontally like a mm -hmm. sedimentary deposit mm -hmm. under pressure. It's pushed together. So if you come into the mine, the strata actually all runs vertical, which is very unique. Mm -hmm. It's a much safer deposit because it's, it's stacked vertically. So it's a lot stronger than if it's, you know, horizontal, it doesn't fold and break. And so the tunnels in our deposit, they are about uh, 40 feet tall by about 80 feet across. And so we have a, carbide tip kind of looks like a little tiller you'd use in your garden that kind of chews the salt off the wall into chunks like this mm -hmm. and once that salt gets chewed off the wall it's in the mine everything is solid salt floor ceiling walls quarter mile wide three miles just solid crystal salt and so once it's chewed off like this you can do the entire process with a hammer out of your toolbox and a screen out of your kitchen window we just crush the salt, we screen the salt, and we put it in a shaker. Oh. And so there's a different sizes. We have a little larger crystal that you might put in a, like a grinder, or we've got a, a medium-sized crystal that we call the kosher size, which is like the size you might see on a pretzel or a margarita mm. rimmer. It sucks blood out of meat, and mm. so that's why it's called koshering salt. For the Jewish community, blood is not kosher or clean mm. and so by taking a, a steak in koshering salt it sucks the blood out of the meat um, chefs like it because it gives a nice dry rind on the why, steak why can't you use the fine salt to to do that blood sucking process well you could but it would make the meat overly salty and so mm. a larger crystal has more surface area that's mm. that's touching the top without having it it overly salty mm. now if you if you ever go to a jewish restaurant um, and try a, a steak or something, it is, you'll, it's noticeably salty. Mm -hmm. And the reason, like, I would say too salty, even for me, and I love salt, um, but that's because it's been caked in it so it can get the blood out. And then they, it's kind of a dry 
um, it, anyway, it, it's more dry than I would prefer because yes. all that juice has been sucked out before they consume it. Yes. The morning and the sun's amazing. And you've talked about it being you know, three miles by a quarter mile wide. I mean, how much, what percentage of the mine have you covered to date, do you think? Or you know, how, much, how much have you already mined? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And we get asked about sustainability. And so, you know, this, this mine is a, is a set deposit. It doesn't, because it's from an ancient seabed, it doesn't regenerate. Hmm. Um, in the last, you know, 60 years or so, let's see, 1958, that we've been mining, we've gone down about 600 feet um, in that 5,000 foot deposit. Um, and we've taken about 40% of the material in that because um, we ruin pillar mine, meaning we leave a lot of the material there. And so if we were to open pit the mine, there's probably 60% more than we've, we've taken to date. Mm -hmm. And so um, estimates on, you know, from our engineers and geologists say we have about 900 years of salt left, give or, give or take. So, so feel free to, feel free to salt your, uh, your watermelon and your steaks liberally. <laughs> the way, the way things are going, I don't think we're going to be in 900 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got another question, James? Um, do you know what? I was really interested about your, your grandfather's farm. I mean, traditionally, what, what was he farming and what's your background there? Yeah. So, so this is a little farming community in central Utah. And when the early uh, pioneers were kind of, you know, moving west and kind of settling the western part of the state, there's this little, there's this beautiful little valley. And, uh, the Native Americans had actually harvested this salt long before, you know, the early you know, pioneers came into the West. And there was these little outcroppings of salt north and south of this piece of, of farm that was homesteaded, which makes sense because I mentioned before that every civilization kind of started around access to the salt deposits because mm -hmm. salt was so essential for life. It was, you know, the, the, a lot of the spice trails were set up around salt deposits mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. Without salt, humans die, animals die, your, your livestock dies without great access to salt. And so he had this farm, out, primarily alfalfa, so hay for horses, and some wheat, some barley, some corn, just a, just a general, um, you know, general farm. And so, yeah, that's where, and we still have, we have a, a, a natural dairy that we have. Um, we do raw milk and uh, raw cheese and things. And so there are, there is still some farm ground there above ground, but um, the, I don't know if that answered your question, James or not, but. No, absolutely. Uh, I guess obviously the salt mining's taken over that business process really. And that's the main focus of the family business now. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not just my family that's involved anymore. We uh, we're, we're a little bigger than that, but it's, it's sure been a fun, a fun legacy to see, you know, growing up on the farm and changing water and, uh, mm. and then, you know, having the, the, the salt mine there as well. And, and now we still have the farm, but, you know, a lot of the focus is on the, is on the salt side. Mm. And the name Redmond, is that the, the town that the farm was originally, is, is in, is that correct? Yeah, correct. There's actually three red mounds um, behind the town and the, and the nearest town to Redmond. So Redmond is a town, there's about 800 people that live there. So it's still oh, a very wow. small, small community. There's a little town that's just uh, to the south of Redmond called Salina, which uh, is short for Salina, which is, again, kind of Spanish derived for salt. So even when the, when the town, the nearby town was named Salina or Salina, um, the town that the salt mine is in is called Redmond because there's these three red mounds or red mound, Redmond. Um, and then as far as the name real salt, you know, back in the, 
back in the 1970s, originally we sold the salt because they knew the salt was there. It had been harvested, you know, before the native, you know, the, the, the pioneers came into the valley. Um, but at the time, in the 1950s, the salt was sold mostly for agriculture. Mm. And the, the farmers noticed that if they put this, you know, mineral salt out next to the kind of the processed salt that was coming from the Great Salt Lake, that the cows would eat the crystal salt with these minerals in it. And they would lick the ground that the salt was sitting on before they would eat the processed you know, salt blocks. And so they, they knew there was something special to it. But in the 1950s, mostly sold just for agriculture and also for industrial to melt, uh, melt ice on the roads you know, mm. because of the, the safety concern with roads. Mm. So, um, and then the family and the locals all used it as food salt, but it was almost seen as an inferior product because it had these, these minerals in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't look, it didn't look beady and perfect. And it yeah. wasn't, you know, stark white, like, you know, the good salt was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, if your entire life, all you'd ever seen was white bleached uh, flour, the first time you saw wheat flour, you might think it's gone bad or it was mm-hmm. dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the 1970s, there was a health food nutritionist that came through the area. I think he was going to see the Grand Canyon or something. And he stopped by and saw the salt deposit. And we didn't think much of it at the time. But then a few weeks goes by, I started getting all of these phone calls saying, hey, I'd like to buy your salt. And uh, they were from back east and they were from, you know, from the, you know, California, you know, California, east and west coast. And they're saying, well, great. Do you want it for your roads or your cows or, or what do you want it for? And they said, no, we read this article. This nutritionist said that your salt is the, the tastiest, the sweetest, and also the healthiest salt he's ever found. And we'd like to buy it through our kitchens and our restaurants. And we said, well, we don't really sell it in a shaker, but I guess we could. And so the family sat down and said, what do we call this stuff? It's not, it's not processed salt. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, fake salt. It's not, you know, half salt. It's not no salt. It's, it's just real salt. And the name stuck and we've been kind of real salt ever since. At the time we thought it was a kind of a silly name, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, resonated really well now that uh, so many people are trying to, get back to nature and change their lifestyle and live a more healthy and holistic um, life. So it's been kind of fun to see the evolution of this idea of, you know, you know, back in the, and even in the early nineties, people would say, what do you mean real salt is, is my salt real? Of course it's just, and, and as we've, as we've found, you know, most people don't realize they just kind of take for granted that salt is salt until like you say you pour it in your shake or in your hand and you're saying, man, that looks like it's processed or mm-hmm. they look at the, the ingredient label and they're seeing four or five ingredients, you know, dextrose and I mean, weird stuff that's in salt. Um, and so it, it's been fun to kind of see that, that progression as consumers are, are being more intentional about the things that they uh, decide to consume. Mm. And it's, um, it's really interesting what you say there, like that, you know, you started selling, you know, salt for eating in around the seventies. Um, and, but to, to like, you know, to me, two or three years ago, like real salt was a new brand. I was like, whoa, what's this new brand? You know, I first saw it when, it, when the pocket shakers, I don't know how long the pocket shakers have been around for, but I suddenly started seeing that on Instagram and I was like, wow, what's this, you know, this trendy new thing. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And it's, I mean, that's, that's absolutely genius. And that's one of the things, I mean, this is a bit of a, a personal aside, but I'm absolutely fascinated with, with companies like Redmond. Um, because I know, you know, this is probably not common knowledge for everyone, but after speaking to two, uh, you know, I've, Redmond is actually a massive company, you know, and like you say, it's the, you know, the, the agricultural salt, the industrial salt, the culinary salt. You've also got a bunch of other health and beauty products, the skin stuff, the toothpaste stuff. 
and I was absolutely fascinated to, when I when I found that out. It's just you know it's something that I think myself and James at Red Light Rising we'd really, you know I don't I don't know if we'll be around for seventy years, but you know to really get something you know something similar to Redmond going with a, a nice ecosystem of products that we believe in. Um, I wanted to just tell you a little story about myself because I was you know I've been been on this kind of health journey for you know, 15 years now and, and slowly just getting more and more into it as we go along. And, you know, inevitably about 10 years ago, I started hearing about Himalayan pink salt and how you had to have the pink salt all the time, the pink, the pink, the pink. And then, then I started hearing, okay, well, I started being suspicious because in the UK, you could go and buy a bag of pink salt. It seemed like every Tom, Dick and Harry was selling pink salt. Okay. But there was no brand, just a plastic bag. And I was like, well, what is this pink salt? Is this dyed? Is this colored? Is this fraud? Is it fake? Then I started hearing things about the, the exploitation in the Himalayas. And, and I believe that most of the Himalayan pink salt comes from Pakistan. And there was exploitation. There was all sorts of ill business practices. So then I moved to sea salt. I thought, okay, well, I don't want to be involved with any exploitation in the Himalayas. I'm going to stick local. I'm going to get local British sea salt and stick to that. Then I started thinking, oh, well, Jesus, we know the oceans are polluted. We know the heavy metals in there. And, you know, the salt by definition is just like an extraction of everything that's floating around in the ocean. And that's when I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to Redmond because I know Redmond is, you know, presuming there's no slave labor going on in the mines. Uh, I'm presuming there's no fraud. There's no, you know, there's no dying. And, you know, so for me, just to let people know, that's why I've decided you know, it's, it's a little bit counterproductive to kind of import salt from the U.S. into the U.K., but I just think it's the best bet right now. You know, you touched on a couple of really important things when it comes to salt. And uh, I often get asked, you know, what are the questions I should be asking to find a good, healthy salt? I mean, obviously, I'm a little biased, but there's some other great brands out there, and I would never want to, you know, steer somebody away. And, and so I have three questions that I tell people to ask when they're looking for a healthy salt. And I think your listeners might find these three questions, I believe we should be asking them on everything we're consuming, whether it's even a red light therapy, you know, everything that we either eat or consume or use, we're really kind of voting, uh, um, voting on the world we want to live in with the money we spend. And so I think these three questions, the first one is, is who is producing it? Um, you know, today, and salt is, is one of the worst offenders is because a lot of the salt will hit the open market and it's really almost impossible in many salts to find out, as you pointed out, you got these bags of salt and you don't know if it came from, you know, wherever it just ends up. It's the same thing. If you, if you buy a shaker or a bag at the grocery store, you know, being able to know who is actually producing that, I think is really important because it does um, answer some of those questions about sustainability and, and what kind of world we want to live in by voting with the money, that we have. And so being able to know who is producing it, whether you're, you're buying a, a red light therapy or you're, you know, buying eggs or kale for your salad, you know, if you can really know who's producing it, um, I think that's really key. And with salt, it's, it's, it's very difficult because so many salts are commingled and just dumped out in bulk and then repackaged. And so the next thing is, where is it coming from? you kind of touched on this a little bit. Unfortunately, you know, we aren't the best stewards of this planet we call earth. And, you know, a few years ago here in the U S we had that big BP oil spill in the Gulf, you know, water is the universal solvent. And so to say I'm getting, you know, 
you know, some, some clean part of the ocean is very difficult because it's like having a pee only section in the swimming pool. Um, and it doesn't take too long if you're, you know, have this pee only section over in the deep end for that to saturate the entire pool. And so, you know, um, I've got a, some, I sent some salt to one of my friends who is a geologist and he put the salt under like an electron microscope. And this is just some sea salt, a very popular brand of sea salt in the store. And as you look under that, you can see micro bits of plastic in that sea salt. There were some articles that were published around the world with the problems with these micro beads and plastic fibers. And they're showing up in products and, and they're showing up in animal products or showing up in salt products. And so knowing where the salt's coming from, I think, you know, the actual location is really important. And so you can make that decision. Do you want to, you know, as you say, you know, maybe it maybe a sea salt is, and, and there are some good producers in the coast of Brittany, France. And, and there's some great products. There's some great salt in Hawaii. And there's, but I think being that informed and knowing exactly where that product comes from is important. And then the third question is, what's the process? Are they taking anything out? Are they putting anything back in? And, and really kind of understanding where our food's coming from. And so I know that's kind of a long answer, but I think if we can know who's producing it, know where it's coming from, and know the process, are they putting anything out or taking anything, taking anything out or putting anything in, whether you're getting a steak, uh, you know, eggs, salad, salt, you know, I think those are three great questions. And maybe you can't get all three answers on everything that we consume, but as we do, I think we'll have a lot more informed consumers. And even if we decide to, to eat some products that we know, you know, maybe aren't as healthy for us, because I think we all have our, our little cheats on the side. Um, but if we ask those questions, I think generally we'll move towards not only better food, but maybe even a better society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a uh, fantastic, fantastic answer. I've written those questions down and um, it's definitely something that we will, uh, you know, use as food for thought. That's for sure. Um, I'm just wondering, anything come to mind, James? Anything you'd like to pick up? Well, you talk about the literature behind salt and kind of the propaganda and that people thought salt was bad for you. And I think there's a book called The Salt Fix by um, Dr. James DiNicolatonio. Um, and again, it's a really informative book. It talks about the propaganda, how salt was accused of being you know, the, 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 the bad white crystal, whereas obviously he talks about you know, it should have been sugar. Um, and so are there any other good literature sources that you'd like to refer to that you think could really educate people to learn about salt and the history and maybe the benefits for people and things? Yeah. So um, as far as just the world history, and, and I'm, as you can tell, I'm really passionate about salt. And some people think, well, you know, salt's boring. Um, one of the fun ones, it's called Salt, A World History. Um, it's a great book and it kind of goes through the history of, of salt in general from the, from the salt traders and the spice traders up to current production. Um, and it's just, that's, it's more of a secular, you know, type book. It doesn't get into the health benefits. It's just the, the kind of the general overview of salt. Mm. Um, there's a great one that's called Salt Your Way to Health. Um, this is a book written, a book written by an MD here in the U.S. in the Midwest area. And uh, his name is Dr. David Brownstein. And he wrote a great book on salt. And he, he, he's a fan of Redmond Real Salt. He's also a fan of the Celtic uh, Gray Salt. And, and he talks about in his practice in medicine, the, the benefits he has seen putting people back on salt. And oftentimes when somebody goes on a low salt diet, their digestion goes, they start getting these almost fibromyalgia type symptoms. Mm. And he's found as he, he introduces salt back in, 
um, it's in the area, a pretty fascinating book. And I think actually uh, Dr. Uh, James D. Nicol Antonio references some of Dr. Brownstein's work. And then maybe one other one that I find pretty fascinating, it goes back a little further. It's written by a guy named Dr. Batman Gelly. Uh, his book was called Your Body's Many Cries for Water. And then he wrote a book called You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty. And those are kind of some fun books on the importance of water and salt um, in, in a healthy life. So those are some of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I don't know if any of your uh, listeners would be interested. Um, I, I think any discussion on salt isn't really complete without a discussion on iodine. And we could probably spend a whole podcast on the importance of iodine. But today, a lot of people are iodine deficient, which is a problem because iodine deficiency, um, not only do you have a goiter, you know, an extreme iodine deficiency, but then you also have um, reproductive health that have linked low iodine levels to high tumor rates. And so iodine is essential. And so oftentimes when people think of salt, they think of iodine. And the reason for that is back around World War I um, in the U.S., they were drafting military or for the military. And in the Midwest, there was a big goiter problem. Um, you know, the goiter is that big, you know, thyroid problem, which is linked to iodine deficiency. And you can't draft men for the military if they have a big goiter issue. And so the, the bright minds of the world, this wasn't just a U.S. problem. This was a, a global problem. And so the bright minds of the world got together and said, hey, how do we stop iodine deficiency? Now, I would hope that somebody would have said, hey, let's have a campaign on the importance of eating more seafood and maybe some kelp and some foods rich in iodine. That's not what happened, or at least that's not what we ended up with, even if somebody did recommend it. So they decided to say, how can we push iodine on the world population? And they tried adding iodine to flour. It wasn't stable. They tried adding iodine to different things. I don't know if they ever tried to add it to water like some um, communities do to add fluoride to the water to increase fluoride consumption. But th what they found was that if they took iodine and added it to salt, because salt's essential for life, everybody has to eat it, they could force iodine consumption onto the world population. And now, a couple of challenges with that. One, when you add iodine to salt, it's less than 10% bioavailable. And, and so, yes, you are getting some benefit, but it's at a reduced, it's at a reduced level. Now, it did solve the problem. A lot of people that were iodine deficient because they were getting even processed iodine with chemicals added to it in the form of salt, it did help the problem. But it's not the best form of iodine. And the only reason it's there is because they were the, the governments of the world were trying to force iodine onto their populations. Mm. And so iodine is essential for life. And my guess is a lot, of, a lot of our listeners today are probably iodine deficient if they were to go get studied. But, but I would propose that iodized salt is not the best form of iodine. There's some great foods that are rich in iodine. And there's, if you do, if you are iodine deficient, which many people are, there might be a place for iodine supplementation, mm. um, but in a form that's, that's much more bioavailable than a processed salt that has iodine plus other chemicals added to it. Mm. Um, and so that's, anyway, that's kind of a short version of the iodine story. And, and, and I, th I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't have my Redmond with me, right? my real salt with me right now, but real salt isn't iodized, right? It says it on the bottle. Correct. Now, what's interesting about that, when this law went into effect or this discussion, you know, back in World War I, they started adding iodine to salt. 
the uh, the FDA as well as uh, the the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. as well as many other countries created a law that said if you do not add iodine to your salt, you have to put a disclosure that says this salt does not supply iodine a necessary nutrient because they were trying to really compel or force mm -hmm. that iodine consumption. Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, we know that the seawater is rich in iodine. Now, rich, it's not, you know, massively high, but it is a source of iodine, which is why kelp or dulse, which is another form of seaweed, has, has high levels of iodine. Actually, uh, kelp is one of the highest foods you can eat in, in iodine because it's in the seawater. And seafood itself is high in iodine because it's there in the oceans. And so a lot of natural salts, whether it's our brand or some of the, 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 the French gray brands, there's trace amounts of iodine in those salts. Mm -hmm. in, in, in real salt, that's one of uh, Dr. D. Nicolantonio's chapters on iodine and, and that there's natural iodine, about 10% of your recommended daily allowance in, in natural salt. And so even though this has iodine in it, because it's not added to it, that's why that statement there says this salt does not supply iodide, mm. a necessary nutrient, even though it has it in there. Yeah. Um, but unless we add additional, we, we have to put that, that, that notice on there. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I think we're, uh, we're just about ready to wrap up now. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions unless James has something pressing. Um, no, you crack on. You're all good. Um, I wanted to ask you, Daryl, do you have, can you tell us how you use red salt every day? I know it's a bit of a yeah. silly one, but I'm sure you've got some tips. <laughs> yeah, so a couple of things. So I love to mountain bike. Um, when I'm not in the office, um, you know, you can find me mountain biking in the summertime. A lot of great mountain bike trails here. And so because of that, I am I'm sweating a lot. I'm drinking a lot of fluids. Um, and so I will add a quarter teaspoon of salt to a glass of water. And I feel that just really kind of just energizes me. Um, so that's the one way I'll do it. I salt my food liberally. And, you know, I'll always, people kind of tease me, but I always have one of these little pocket shakers in my pocket um, when I go out to eat. And I'm, I'm never worried about eating too much salt because I drink plenty of water. Mm -hmm. Again, if you went to the hospital and you have an IV that's salt water, you cannot overdose on an IV solution. Mm -hmm. It'll just actually balances the body. You might need a catheter hooked up. <laughs> but you're not going to overdose on, on saline because you have the great salt with plenty of fluids. Now, mm -hmm. if you don't have enough fluids or you're eating crappy foods that are, you know, that have, you know, copious amounts of processed salt. Yeah, that's certainly a problem. And then what I do it, on my kitchen table, I have, and I'm not in my kitchen, but on my kitchen table, I have a little jar um, or a dish. This is a big dish, but I have a little dish of, of salt crystals mm -hmm. on my, on my countertop. And what's interesting with salt, you know, I'm a big proponent of listening to your body talk and kind of, you know, paying attention to cravings. If you're thirsty, drink. If you have a craving for a food item, you know, be, be aware of that. And now, oftentimes a craving for sugar is actually a craving for salt. Hmm. And so if somebody's mo moving that transition and, and a craving for potato chips or French fries isn't because you're craving this, you know, saturated, oily, um, you know, product, you're actually craving the salt. And so mm -hmm. by having a little dish of salt sitting out, um, as I either have a, a sugar craving or, you know, as I walk past, there's oftentimes where it just, it just is almost like candy to take a little piece of salt and suck on it. If it's good, clean salt mm -hmm. and, it, and it just tastes sweet. Now what's interesting is by the time you eat that third or fourth crystal, you'll find that it tastes too salty. 
Mm. As your body's level of salt come up, that mm. need for salt is suppressed. Same thing when you're thirsty. You're dying of thirst. That first glass of water is so refreshing. The sixth glass, you're like, oh my gosh, that's too much. And salt is the same way. If we start listening to our body talk, <clears throat> when we listen to that, that craving, by having that little dish of salt there, I can really regulate that salt level. And that little piece I just ate, it's, it's gone now, mm. but it has a very sweet flavor, which to me means, you know, <clears throat> I had this big ride yesterday to 24 miles and I haven't had a chance to really recover my electrolytes. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm stuck on this piece of salt, because it's so sweet, I know my salt levels are a little low. And then as I maybe eat the third or fourth piece, it becomes, you know, mm. not mm. that less sweet. And it becomes like, oh, I don't, I don't want another piece. Mm. Um, and so I think I'm a big proponent of using salt, you know, salting my food when I'm, when I'm exercising or out in the sun all day, you know, salting my water, you know, rather than buying an expensive sports uh, electrolyte drink that has sugar, it has artificial mm -hmm. food coloring, it's got flavoring, it's all weird stuff. Mm -hmm. Take a quart or a liter of water, add a quarter teaspoon of natural salt to it, a little squeeze of lemon. And that's going to be way better than the purple, the pink, mm -hmm. the blue sports drinks. And you're making it for, for penny or less mm -hmm. than pennies. Yeah. Um, and it, it's way healthier. So that's, those are the ways that I try to incorporate salt into my, into my lifestyle. Awesome. Brilliant. Awesome. Um, I've got, I've got, what, I've got a couple more questions actually. And, and I've got a technical question for you here. So I do live at the beach and like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, my, my real salt is just sucking up all the moisture from the air and I have to bang it to get the salt out. Is there a hack to, I mean, you know, we don't want to obviously add the chemicals to it, but what can I do to stop my salt from sucking up the sea air? <laughs> A great question. So you have two choices. Yeah. Um, well, maybe three. Uh, you can move somewhere that's more dry. Okay, not going to happen. <laughs> next one. Okay, the next one is to add something like uh, in your shaker, you can add rice. Uh -huh. um, and it will displace the salt particles. And what that rice is doing is actually keeping the particles from touching. Mm. And so that's another way to do it. The other way is to just get a, a little bit larger salt granule. Because salt, again, is hygroscopic, the smaller the particle you have, the more surface area you have that's exposed. Mm. So if I, if I measure the surface area of this crystal versus the exposed surface area mm. of, of all those crystals crushed up, mm. the more surface area, the more hygroscopic ability you have because of that increased surface area. So if you have two crystals and one is fine and, and really small and one is a little more chunky, that the, the more chunky is going to set up less than the smaller, finer particle. Now, the downside of that is you might get a little bit of crunch because your salt crystal's a little bigger, mm -hmm. but it will, it will clump a lot less, the, the larger the crystal. Or, or adding something like rice uh, yeah. to it to help displace and keep the particles from gluing together. I'm finding now, I am doing the rice thing, but I'm also finding now that the rice itself is also starting to absorb water. So the rice is like, it's almost like it's cooking inside the shaker. <laughs> it comes out kind of soft and salty. Um, okay, this is the absolute last four questions. We like to do a little, a little quick fire round at the end of the, at the end of every podcast. It's you know, it doesn't have to be crazy in depth, but um, I think you'll enjoy these questions. Um, if you could go back uh, to your youth, what bit of advice would you give yourself that you now know today? Wow. Uh... 
Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I would, I would say, um, be more kind. Um, you know, I think the, the world sometimes when we live in the moment, um, sometimes it's hard to see the forest because the trees are in the way. And yeah. I think, you know, the world could all do with a little more kindness and a little more, uh, helpfulness. Awesome. Powerful. Um, what about your favorite book or a book that really made an impression on you? Um, wow. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, there's, there's a book called the fountainhead, um, by, uh, Ayn Rand. And, uh, it, it, for me, that was just a very insightful book. It, it was one that there was a lot of things that uh, kind of questioned my current, uh, views. Um, and so the fountainhead would be one that I would list. Oh, wow. Okay, great. I'll look into that. Um, and I think you are wearing an aura ring on your finger. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you were, creepy you were right. Yeah. Um, so the third question is, what is your favorite piece of tech? It doesn't have to be um, related, I suppose. Probably there's an app on my phone called Strava. And uh, it, I, I just love Strava. Um, it's amazing. I did this ride the other day on my mountain bike. I got a personal record on this one section of trail. Um, and I pulled it up and I had done that section of trail 69 times. And, uh, and it was just, it was just fun and insightful. I, I mountain bike a lot around here, but I had, I hadn't realized that I had done this particular section of trail, you know, 69 times. And, uh, I, I just, I, I enjoy Strava. And so it's kind of a fun way to, to keep track of, of my, uh, my running and, and, and biking. And awesome. so I'll, I'll go with Strava final answer. Great. Perfect. We'll take it. And then the last and final question, uh, your best habit or your favorite daily habit, be it your health or your wellness or your, or your mental peace. For, for me, it's exercise. You know, um, it doesn't matter, you know, what that is, but getting my heart rate up. Um, you know, I, I love, I saw this t-shirt once that said push pedals, not pills. It was a biking t-shirt. Um, and for me, that's, that's really the case. And my wife is the same, you know, I can tell she's a school teacher and, you know, if she doesn't get that endorphin rush, um, you know, once a day, she, she's a lot more miserable. Our kids are more miserable. I'm more miserable. I think her students are probably more miserable. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've really gone, you know, better appreciate, um, what that once a day heart rate elevation does, whether it's just, even if it's a brick, brisk walk around the neighborhood, cause I don't get a chance to get out on my bike. Um, but for me, that physical exercise cleans my mind. I think it cycles my blood and, and cleans, um, you know, mm. my body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, that daily heart rate ex elevation is, is key for me to feel, mm. to feel good. Beautiful. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Daryl. It's been an uh, absolute pleasure, absolutely fascinating. Um, for those people who are interested, if you are taken by our little podcast here, you can obviously find Redmond Real Salt on our website, redlightrising.co.uk. It's just for the UK and Europe right now. I suppose if you're US-based, you've got no uh, shortage of finding Redmond Real Salt anywhere. Daryl, James, thank you so much for your time. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye-bye.